Now I'd like to introduce today's participants. And as I say your name, if you could just raise your hand so the audience can identify you. Sarah Demers, the Horace D. Taft Associate Professor of Physics at Yale University, is a particle physicist who studies the fundamental particles and forces of nature. Her recent work has focused on the characterization of the Higgs boson and the measurement of tau polarization with the ATLAS collaboration, as many of you saw in, in the film, at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. She received her bachelor's degree from Harvard University and her PhD from the University of Rochester. She was a postdoctoral researcher with Stanford's SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory before joining Yale's faculty in 2009. While at Yale, she has received an early career award grant from the Department of Energy and the Yale Provost Teaching Award. She also collaborates with professional dancer, writer, and director of the, of the Yale Dance Studies curriculum, Emily Coates. She and Coates co-teach a physics of dance class together at Yale and are writing a course book under contract with Yale University Press. They've created an art science film called The Three Views of the Higgs and Dance. Mark Levinson, before embarking on his film career, earned a doctoral degree in theoretical particle physics from the University of California at Berkeley. In the film world, he became a specialist in ADR, working with actors and directors in post-production to write and record additional dialogue. He has worked closely with such directors as Anthony Minghella, English patient, talented Mr. Ripley, Cold Mountain, Francis Ford Coppola, The Rainmaker, Milos Forman, Goya's Ghosts, Sean Penn, The Pledge, and David Fincher on Seven and The Social Network. He is the writer, producer, director of the narrative feature film Prisoner of Time, which examined the lives of former Russian dissident artists after the collapse of the Soviet Union and had an acclaimed premiere at the Moscow International Film Festival. And as many of you saw, he directed the award-winning documentary feature Particle Fever. Alberto Manguel is a Canadian writer, translator, editor, and critic born in Buenos Aires in 1948. He has published several novels, including News from a Foreign Country Came, and All Men Are Liars, and nonfiction, including A History of Reading, The Library at Night, and together with Gian, uh, Gianni uh, Guadalupe, The Dictionary of Imaginary Places. He has received numerous international awards, among others the Commander of the Order of Arts and Letters from France, and is Dr. Honoris Causa of the Universities of Liège in Belgium and Anglo-Ruskin Cambridge in the United Kingdom. His new book, Curiosity, as I mentioned earlier, will be published in March. Gene Strauss is the author of Morgan, American Financier, which was published in 1999 and again republished in 2014, and Alice James, a biography, first published in 1980 and again in 2011, which won the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy. Her essays and reviews have appeared in publications including The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times, Vogue, and Slate. A member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society, she has received fellowships from the MacArthur and Guggenheim Foundations, served as president of the Society of American Historians, and worked as a consultant, as oral historian, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She is currently director of the Dorothy and Louis B. Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. Now we'll begin. <coughs> Maybe that film was absolutely fantastic, and there's a moment when they've done it, at least we think they've done it. <laughs> they found the Higgs boson, and Savas, that may, if anybody hasn't seen it, maybe you can explain more exactly about who he is, but he has this little speech that made me cry, probably you as well from watching it, about how astonishing it is 
that humanity, that people with our little brains can figure out things like this, that we want to understand the world and the universe we live in, and we can, <laughs> at least. So you probably remember that scene better than oh, I've yeah. just oh, described it. I mean, it. It, you know, Savas was such a, a gift to us. I mean, it's just like everything he said was like a Greek, Greek philosopher, I mean. And uh, yeah, that, that line, I mean, you know, really, in some sense, it also reflects what really attracted me to physics initially. I mean, this fact that it, there seems to be, first of all, that there's any laws of nature at all. I mean, as soon as I said, that there's any laws of nature at all, that they're describable by mathematics. The mathematics is a language that we've invented and we understand. This is the biggest mystery of all. I mean, that uh, uh, there didn't have to be order that we could comprehend. And the fact that we come up with this, you know, humans have come up with this invention this mathematical thing that actually describes physical nature. And in the LHC, an extreme example of you know, very abstract theories, and then this huge machine that Sarah works on um, comes up with a bump that corresponds to it. I, I think it really is the thing that is the most magnificent thing and representative of, of a, an absolute peak in, in human achievement. I found it fascinating, um, the scientists tr trying to find a vocabulary to speak about this, and the vocabulary coming from philosophy, from, from literature. I found it very moving that scientists speak of a beautiful formula, a beautiful discovery. What, what does that mean to a scientist? I think that, uh, from my perspective, that scientists are human beings, and so we think in these terms, right? It's, um, it's interesting that there's been a divide between what people think of as the scientific brain that's operating and the artistic brain that's operating. I mean, I, I think it's natural to use that kind of language to describe something that you're excited it's about It's wonderful in your to work. see it, yeah. to, to, to see it spoken, to so, hear it spoken. I, I think that the the um, excitement or the, the miraculous discovery of the Higgs. It, it's the amazing fact that we can make that kind of progress is just firmly planted in the context of the lack of understanding in general that we have, right? That keeps that discovery in perspective. Mm -hmm. So as a practicing scientist thinking about the Higgs um, and that achievement, um, as thrilling as it is, and as much of a peak as it is, it's in this incredible valley <laughs> with yes. the 97%, the 94% of the universe that we don't understand, these huge mysteries, right? So it's, it, it is very exciting and fascinating for me to think about that progress, but it's in that, that context of just a tremendous amount that we don't understand. It's not clear if we have a framework that will let us make further progress in the same way. But it's also, yeah, it's true. And I, I think that was one of the things that drove us, or gave us some confidence that hopefully there would be people interested because we could touch at these big issues. And these are issues that anybody can understand and anybody can appreciate. You know, the details, and look, we made the decision very early on. This is not gonna be the film that explains all the detailed physics, but 
in some sense, we're going to go for the big things and the big issues, which are things that anybody has, uh, you know, that we hoped anybody of any intellectual curiosity would be interested in. Curiosity. I mean, I, it's, I think it's amazing you've written this book. I mean, because I think that's another one of Savas's great lines when he's yes. saying, you know, why do we do this? Well, you know, and he for thinks no about reason. these things for no reasons, for yes. no reason. Yes. I mean, and, you know, uh, he ties it in with this issue of, you know, there's no evolutionary value. And, but what is the basis of it? is a curiosity, and once you have it, you can't forget it. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, you must explore a lot more in your book. Well, <laughs> I, 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 try to, I, I, I try to look at the questions that we ask. I think that the questions are so much more interesting than any answers that we, we can give. And what f interested me in, in the film was that even uh, with the discovery of the Higgs particle, um, you don't have an answer. You, you simply have more questions. You have another set of questions. And I'm always interested in the fact that we come from whatever vocabularies we have, and we apply the vocabulary to the world that we're seeing, because we have to remember that the universe is totally uncaring. The universe is not conscious of its laws or what we do with them or where we are. So these are questions that we bring to our state of being and to the universe around us. Even these words are invented by us. So we invent the story and then we ask, how does this happen? And what, what is the initial impulse to understand something or to work it out? I mean, it's, these are, that's the deep question in a sense. And, and you know, similarly, you know, related to the, the art issue, what is it that prompted the first person to draw a representation of the world on a cave? I mean, animals don't do that. I mean, you know, that they would think that, you know, we could abstract as an abstract symbolic representation of the world around them. Was it motivated for informational purposes? Was it just, you know, is it something intrinsic in us that we just want to represent something? And I do think that there's a very direct line to what you know, Nima is doing on the board, which he very much, uh, you know. Yeah, there's a beautiful yeah. counterpoint. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. This juxtaposition of the glorious cave drawings and Nima writing his formulas on the board. And it made me think, this is what I see. That the caveman was saying, this is what I see. And mm. Nima is saying, this is what I see in such different realms. and. Eons, yeah. but but why did they? Why do you think that you know somebody first did it? Darwinian biologists say that um, we came up with imagination as a mechanism for survival, so that we are the only species that can uh, have an experience without actually having the experience. We can invent the story of what would happen if you put your hand in the. The, the mouth of a lion before doing that. And uh, imagination leads immediately to questioning. When you look at something and you uh, think that there's a story there, you want to know who did it, you want to know where it's going, you, know, you want to know what happened once upon a time and how will it end. I think we 
also each, as individuals, have experience with this without having to be at the forefront of it. Meaning, when I was learning physics, I got to discover Newton's laws. Every step, when I understood something and saw, wait, this is, this is applying to something real around me, I didn't have to be the first one to come up with that to understand that experience. And I think that all of the learning that we do um, when we're young in science or not in science, that, that teaches us what discovery is. Every individual gets to discover so many things about the world, right? Mm. The, the nice thing about, um, well, in, in the, the scientific discovery, what you get to keep doing is asking questions along that line, along a path. But you have a tremendous amount of experience discovering all of physics that's been discovered before you, everything you have time to or that you can manage to grasp, I right? I the metaphor of running, by the way, uh, the fact that you'd ha you can't concentrate on getting somewhere. You need to keep asking the questions along, along the road, and, and, and that's what makes the activity interesting. Mm. Actually, it's also interesting. I mean, we don't join in the film, but um, Monica, um, Fabiola, and Martin all run, ah. and uh, Fabiola, Martin, Monica, and Nima all play the piano. Uh, and you know, I'm not going to extrapolate to everybody, but but it is sort of interesting that they they have the the running is you know this persistent endurance uh, process sort of thing, and then and then the interest in music, this other side as well, and for its own sake, these and for are its own sake, all activities. For no reason, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it makes me think a little bit about young children and watching them explore the world, the curiosity. Every single moment is a discovery for a young child. And certain adults keep that quality and want we to keep it. We relearn it. We relearn it. Wait mm -hmm. a second. I get to ask why? I get to keep asking why? And, and having my kids are four and six right now, I remember the stage when they went through and, and realizing, wow, we, I, I relearned being able to do that because I forgot it. I forgot that I had permission to ask how does that work and, and uh, to keep asking that next question. And not for what financial purpose. <laughs> I guess. That was a great moment. Great film. moment. Yeah. Someone asks David that. Yeah, yeah. I assume everybody here has seen the film. Yeah. I don't, but actually, with the curiosity thing, though, I think one of my favorite moments actually there was when Martin's doing the uh, little experiment with the kids, and he says, "See this?" and he says, "Yeah, but the card got wet." <laughs> you know, but that's he's not, you know not exactly focusing on exactly the yeah, same thing. It's a, it's a good question yeah, that yeah. leads to something else. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, what you were saying too. I mean, in some sense, is it is. You know, is it uh, evolutionary adaptations? Maybe initially it was predictive, you know, that there was an adaptation that you could predict that you know, we first got this capability of saying, hmm, if I go there and there's a lion there, I'm going to be eaten. Um, and maybe it was a very practical thing initially to have this predictive imagination and maybe the next step was an imagination that didn't necessarily have survival or value. Or maybe they, they, there wasn't a, a, a difference because these are categories that mm. we keep establishing in terms of practicality. You were saying this absurd difference between the, the mind of a scientist and the mind of an artist. Uh, well, for a very long time, there was no difference in the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. Uh, an alchemist was what? An artist or a science? Leonardo. Leonardo Dante, who was, was quoted and who, uh, in, in fact, fits so perfectly with his idea. He 
in, at the end of his vision, when finally he sees the great vision, he compares it to the universe of scattered pages that somehow come bound in a volume at last for him to see. Um, this is what, what I felt with the film, that the, the volume was being bound at last. We, we haven't read it. We don't know what it means. But somehow it's coming together. It, it's, it's such a beautiful model. Well, I, I, I do think that you know this this notion of the artist's brain and the scientist's brain being separate is something that's just not true. Uh, I mean, there are examples of extremities in both cases, but um, I think one of the rewarding things with taking the film around has been having people come up to me afterwards who are uh, not physicists, first of all, other scientists, but but also um, in the arts and, and feeling akin to it and. And actually having scientists tell me that they feel they feel like they're artists. They feel like they're very creative artists. It is. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's I mean, practically, it's difficult. And you fail and come up with lots of bad ideas. But artists do that all the time well, as well. There was a lovely uh, idea that came up, the idea of failure as, as essential. Uh, Stevenson had this wonderful line about our purpose in life is not to succeed but to continue to fail in the best of spirits. <laughs> That's, he, would, he would be very, uh, very friendly with Savas. <laughs> I think one of the differences that I've seen working with artists and learning more about, uh, about um, the products and the definition of research within art is the process. Right? That's, that's what's different exactly. for us. We have a different process. And it's something that, um, that you learn how to do. You have to learn how to do. And when I talk to other physicists, we have a language that's shared. We tend to approach problems in similar ways. Um, and it, it, what's interesting, I think, if, if you're working in these different realms, pushing toward, toward research, discovering something, is to have access to other kinds of processes. It's interesting that the scientists also have a piece of that artistic process, right? We're allowed to, to try to learn different kinds of processes. I think it's helpful when, when you have that in your toolbox, not just one way of approaching a problem. Do you see parallels? Sorry, no, go ahead. When you're working on dance, do you see parallels? To, I mean, it's a different language, but do you think about the connections? Right, so my work, uh, my, I'm not actually the one working on dance. I'm working with a dancer, and so I think we try to have our two disciplines interacting with each other. So we're, we're going after that, I think. We're, we're actively trying to see how is your process, what's mine, and, and um, yeah, that's our goal in some ways of that collaboration. Absolutely. Well, actually, I, I think this was sort of fascinating when I saw that you were doing this because um, there's a, uh, a, a troupe, Liz Lerman is a dancer. She has a troupe down in Baltimore. and. Um, she went to CERN, and uh, she wanted to try to do something there. And she just, you know, it's just this feeling as an artist that I think, and I think we're seeing a lot of this. There's a cross-fertilization, but there seems to be many more artists that are really getting fascinated with science. And so she went there, and they went down to the cavern, and they did this thing. And, you know, she had these dancers 
these men wearing like dresses and, and uh, you see the, they filmed it and you see these engineers there with hard hats just sort of looking. And I don't know which is more bizarre, you know, the construction like the Atlas Cavern and, or these men in dresses dancing around down there. And she wanted to just do a piece about it. And we actually filmed uh, a performance that she did. Uh, it didn't make it in the film, but it's so, uh, it was fascinating when I read that you were now also involved working with a dancer and what, what was, how did that happen? What was the motivation? Well, for... one thing I should say is that we've had Liz come to our class, so oh, that really? those of us who work in these oh. kinds of juxtapositions tend right. to, uh, yeah. to to find each other. Um, the so the the collaboration between physics and dance that we have at Yale was really started in a top-down way. It's, it wasn't an organic story. It was it was a curriculum development piece, and I was imagining um, physics. Um, like taking dance, so a work of art, and breaking it down from the physics perspective, right? Making that mathematical model of everything that's happening in physics. And the dancer who I happened to work with uh, was very sophisticated with a mission of her own who was doing movement research and was not interested in that kind of uh, art at the service of science collaboration, which became obvious very early. And so the, the two of us decided, let's take our two disciplines on equal footing and see where this takes us. Let's, let's let dance help us understand and communicate science. And let's let science help us uh, understand and communicate dance. Let's go in both directions, take turns leading. And then sometimes we're not going to be um, speaking the same language. And those times, we'll just put the two next to each other and, and see what happens. I think the, the place that we've pushed it um, is this idea of embodied cognition. Or not really pushed it in that direction, but thinking about it. From my perspective as a practicing scientist, what is it that, how does this feed back into my research? And it's been a recognition of the reality that the ways we operate in the world, including our very bodies, have an impact on the way we're approaching the world. These, um, the, the creativity that you have, the kinds of questions that you can ask, yes. the questions you're capable of asking, the, the analogies that you have access to, are all limited or informed by your experience in the world, which, wow, you're right. That has something to do with your body. It didn't, never occurred to me before interacting with the dancer. Limited by our senses as well, because yeah. I'm always wondering, uh, when you talk um, about that model of the universe where we are in this tiny lost corner and the possibility of these other uh, worlds uh, around us expanding, um, what don't we see? What, and, and already there, I'm limiting the question by the fact that I know that humans see. But what are the senses that would allow us to understand, grasp, uh, perceive, discover, I don't know what verb to use, um, the rest of the universe? Yeah, well, it is. I, I think you are up the boundaries of things that we can comprehend, and that, that is an interesting concept. I mean, the, the, the idea of the multiverse, um, I mean, in one sense, it's easy to say the words, oh, it's other universes, but actually, rigorously, mathematically, I mean, it's hard to actually imagine how we would actually uh, detect it. Yes. I mean, I think that's really the issue. Uh, you know, people often ask, they ask, do I prefer the multiverse or supersymmetry or what do physicists prefer? And I always say, I think it's legitimate, is they actually don't care as long as they know which one it is. Yes. I mean, because 
I mean, supersymmetry has all these beautiful things about it. I mean, it's really, it's such an absolute accomplishment and it would solve certain issues, possibly, you know, possibly explaining dark matter and various other issues. Um, and so that would be great. Uh, but, I mean, if we could prove that there's other universes, I mean, that would be even more profound. But the problem is we just don't know how to do it. And so you're, you're, you, you, we've invented an idea that we might not be able to prove, which is a very difficult position to be in. Because not only perhaps prove, but also we wouldn't have the vocabulary to name it. I love an anecdote uh, about Christopher Columbus coming to America, and he writes this in his journal, that uh, he approaches the coast of Venezuela, and he sees three manatees swimming, and he says, yesterday I saw three mermaids, but they're not as beautiful as they say they are. <laughs> we, we bring the vocabulary of what we think we're going to see. But if we see something that we have no way of recognizing, how do we name it? I wanted to uh, see what you think about this, because uh, I understand what you said about art and science and so on. But are there, A, individual differences in the level of passion and energy that goes behind the kind of endeavor that we saw in the movie, and which I feel coming from you, because when you talked about what you were doing, there is so much energy already behind it that I assume you have a lot of passion for what you do. So not everybody has it. So that's number one. And number two, is it possible that certain uh, researchers or endeavors are more uh, fueled by curiosity and this desire for the quest than others? And is it possible that physics is one of them? Wow. So I think in any, back to the idea of process, I think in any work that you're doing, um, there's going to be incredible drudgery. There's going to be times when you're measuring the lengths of springs. I recently have been cutting and pasting a lot of names of Atlas dataset IDs that we used for one of the Higgs characterization papers into a spreadsheet. So I think that there certainly are different levels of tenacity that people have. Something that I try to do that is much easier as an educator and a researcher to do for me is maintain the sense of the big picture so that when I'm cutting and pasting or um, or whatever the, the drudgery is in my process or the things I have to get through, I know, um, I appreciate the little steps, the completed spreadsheet that tells the complete picture of how we simulated that sample and made that plot. It's the little victories that I celebrate along the way, um, but also try to maintain the big picture of, of what the science is trying to achieve and, and what we're doing together. So I think that some people the people who I've seen who have left the fields of physics, um, I, I don't know that it's a different level of, of passion. It's not even a different level of capability 
but it's important to have the ability to, to make it through the drudgery of your practice. And when I think of the parallel with the artist, um, so Emily, the practice of dance, the, the rigor of that, or, or basketball player dribbling the basketball. You've got to dribble the basketball. You've got to do the layups over and over and over again. And keep in mind the big picture of the game that you're going to play, right? You've got to, and then keep fighting past when you lose the game, or when we make the plot and things don't look the way we think that they do, things we don't understand them. So, yeah, I think to be successful. Is looking for something. It seems to me there is an element of searching for something, finding answers to something that is particular to certain fields. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, for me, the idea of being associated with a, a quest that I see as um, such a fundamental part of who human beings are, um, something that's been going on how many years? Thousands and thousands and thousands of years trying to understand the universe. Even being a little part of that for me is, is a real privilege and I think keeps me very excited. But I think I, don't... That, I mean, it is true, especially in big science. I mean, there, there are different <coughs> levels of engagement and there are people that are um, very happy to be just doing their little job and they're not really thinking about the big questions. It may have been their initial motivation, but the practicality is different. And, you know, they, it's hard to be at the frontier of things. And, and, and I think that um, uh, we, you tend to think that somebody who's an artist might be demonstrating the passion more. But, you know, you have to compare it to the people in the sciences that are doing the same thing. I think one of the big differences in the sciences is there's sort of a measurable sense of progress. That you know, when you're doing your spreadsheet, you know, when you've completed it, you've you've got it and it's done. Whereas I think in the arts, it's actually you're never really sure if you're done. I don't you're think never that's really true. done. I think <laughs> you're, you're never, never really, really done. done. No, yeah. the whole idea of discovery with the Higgs boson is it's right. an, it's a limit we set five sigma, right? right? I mean, there, there's there's not that kind of certainty in the sciences. I don't think. I don't know when I'm done with my plot. I believe that I understand <laughs> right. the data. I've convinced enough yeah. of my colleagues, right. so they'll let. They'll let me move forward with it, and, and we'll put our names on it in a paper. But no, we never know when we're done. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean in a big sense. I certainly agree with that. But, but along the way, there are tasks that can be completed <laughs> that you true. can say, you know, yes. whereas with, you know, with writing, what about it? You know, do you ever really think that you're right? That you, 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 you know, oh, I've got this chapter. I'm done with it. I don't have to go back never, to it. Never, never. <laughs> this also reminds me, um, and your, your comment about um, Columbus um, rang a bell with um, Daniel Borstein in his uh, 1975 Wreath Lectures yes. made a distinction between discoverers and explorers. Uh, Columbus was a discoverer because he was looking for what he thought he knew, you know, something about Asia, that he was looking for a, a path. But Bornstein's distinction was about ex exploration not having a defined goal, per se. And I mean, but, you know, so I'm, I'm also wondering how you think about that in your individual work. Is that a useful distinction, or, or how, how do you... How do you process your curiosity in terms of discovery versus exploration? Yeah, I mean, writing is similar and different in some ways to all of this, but to have an enormous research project, which you probably think you know about at the beginning, and then when you're tunneled into years and years of <laughs> reading and observing and 
um, learning, you'd find it's taking uh -huh. you in directions you weren't expecting at all. Yes. Um, well, you, you have uh, your wonderful biography of Alice James. Uh, you mentioned somewhere that Alice James talks about the everyday tasks and in, in what bigger picture does that fit? Um, I don't know that I'm quoting this correctly, but to speak of what she does every day and then asking the question of, that you were asking, um, in, in, in what big book do these individual chapters fit? Mm -hmm. uh, that connects to something that Mark said earlier too about making this film, finding people through whom to tell the story. I think biography yes. is finding narrative ways into history that are very appealing, both as a writer to be able to understand history that way and one hopes as a reader. Um, so yes, there's a particular life with its particular circumstances and you absolutely stay with those, but you also have to give it a context. Right. So here is the younger sister of William and Henry James who um, was very articulate, very bright, but couldn't she wasn't a genius on the order of her brothers. What could she carve out for herself as a life, as a way to be, to speak? She did actually keep a diary toward the end of her life and found her own voice in a way. And um, it was a very difficult life and it was only the last few years of her life, but she did have, she did make a place for herself in that pantheon, but it never was published. She, you know, nobody knew about it. So in an odd way, this is a funny thing to say, but I think you'll see what I mean. In writing a book about her, I gave her a bigger voice. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you followed that path of, of exploration rather than discovery because you didn't know where you were going. And, and I think it's always the most interesting, I go back to the metaphor of the runner. Uh, I find that very, very useful because uh, Running to get somewhere is far less interesting than running. Well, that's actually, it's another quote of Salas's, which uh, we didn't include. I, th I thought it was in it, but it's out, which he, he, he very explicitly says, you know, that you have to enjoy the journey. It's like the uh, Odyssey. You have to enjoy the journey. Um, and as he said, you know, when, when, when he got home, it actually wasn't all that great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little more about Curiosity, your yeah. book, Curiosity. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I started uh, with the idea um, of w which you asked, which is why, why are we curious? Why, why do we want to ask questions? And, and what are the questions that pushed our thought uh, uh, forward um, when we started thinking about who we are and what this place is w that we call the, the, the world or the universe and then from then onwards, and um, to see how many times those questions um, are against our impulse of labeling, so that we, we seem to exist between these two contradictory impulses of, of, of building labels that comfort us and, and having languages that uh, uh, that are catechisms and dogmatic, and then on the other side, asking questions that destroy those labels and those catechisms. Um, and I go into the 
the discussion of what is a permissible curiosity and what is not. Uh, and I use Dante. I, I, I thought it was wonderful when she <laughs> puts Dante there. <laughs> yes. Uh, we made this film with you in mind. Thank you. Um, because you can hang almost everything. These questions are in the Commedia, and they are very useful to, to illustrate them. So, um, yes, but uh, going back to the, the question and the, 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 the film, um, I felt such joy and elation when, when this Higgs particle was, and, and again, not, not discovered, but that we have the courage of saying, we, now you, have the courage of, of saying, this is there, and so there is something. Now let's start to revise everything, throw everything out of the window and start again. Um, it's extraordinary, and I, I think that there are so many moments where we have done that, where we discover that the Earth is round, where we, we discover gravity, we, uh, and, and those are moments that exist also in painting, in dance, in, in, in literature. Uh, we suddenly say, this begins something else. Although I think actually that brings up a really, what is a sort of a critical difference with art and sciences. And in some sense, there's consensus in science when you have proved something. Um, there's very little consensus. I mean, there can be uh, in art, you know, there's, there's it's uh, easier to refute somebody saying, oh, this is great, this is not great. I mean, you're, you're much more subject to subjective interpretation. I, I would argue against yeah. that. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a few fools who will say that uh, King Lear is not a good play. Um, but by and large, there are some things that we, uh, as humans, uh, agree upon. We don't agree why they are great mm. or why they move us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that by and large... Um, but what about like modern art? Uh, give it time. <laughs> give it time. Yeah. Give it time. It also was modern art. And, yeah. But I think one of the differences mm -hmm. is that at its best, or at his or her best, a scientist is just waiting. It, it, it has, has a theory, but the work is to understand if the theory is correct. The work is not to convince the world of the theory or to build up everything around the theory to make sure that this idea is the one that everybody agrees with. The work is to try to say, is this the right theory or is this the not right theory, right? And so what that means is when somebody refutes, it's, it's, um, it's progress yes. as, opposed to, uh, as opposed to condemnation of you, right? Having a theory that's then refuted, well, that's really helpful yes. that you propose yeah. this theory. Right. And the fact that it's not true, we've made progress through that. Mm -hmm. There's no shame, right? There might that's be frustration or some disappointment, yes. but, but it's progress. And so it's, it's, um, I think it's a different. Yeah. but. Uh... I agree. I, just so following up on yours, do you think that uh, eventually Nima's going to like that sculpture? I can't print, print that, but I, I liked it, certainly. <laughs> so maybe that's a, a, a refutation of his not liking it. Yeah. Um, but uh, style as uh, uh, 
theory and science take, takes time to ground itself. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and when you build something, if everybody agrees upon that at the moment, uh, you know that it's conventional and probably not of Boring. much use. <laughs> yes. Um, w when you have something that uh, needs to be learned um, with a different vocabulary, then maybe you have something that is interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, the artist, as a scientist, uh, has constantly to teach us how mm. to look and how to think. Mm. When, when you said there is curiosity and you kind of laughed, prohibited curiosity, you mm -hmm. used the word, what do you have in mind? Well, <clears throat> the, <laughs> um, <coughs> from the very beginning of our consciousness of curiosity, <clears throat> uh, we have discussed what we should be allowed to be curious about. So <clears throat> in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, for instance, we were not allowed to eat the fruit of one tree. All the rest was fine, but why, why that particular fruit and why that particular tree? And um, this uh, starts a, a line of, of thought that is also found in, in, in Greek philosophy and also found uh, in Indian philosophy, <clears throat> that um, there are certain enterprises that should not be attempted because they might destroy our comfortable view of the universe. Um, uh, Ulysses uh, in Dante is not allowed to go beyond the limits of the known world. When he goes there, he um, falls into a kind of uh, uh, wave that swallows him, and that is his last journey. Because if he gets to that point, which is Mount Purgatory, our view of the world is destroyed. The dogma no longer holds. And so that is considered a bad curiosity. Um, and, but but, but uh, we, we, have that, we have that in science now. I mean, the whole discussion about in biology, how you should be allowed to tamper with genes, for instance, uh, up to where you can uh, investigate science. Uh, well, I mean, Oppenheimer's famous quote uh, after the you know, detonation of the bomb was, you know, that you know, I mean, the sense that uh, we had to do this. It was such a beautiful idea, even though, in some sense, he regretted it afterwards. But that, you know, it was where our curiosity led. Yes. Uh, and then we had to deal with the consequences. Right. And but so. There seems to be an individual factor, because Sarah said she rediscovered the ability to ask right. why. So there was a period where she had lost that ability. Right. She had it, she lost it, then she rediscovered it. And when you talk about your book, it is clear that you had a lot of questions to ask. If you didn't have questions to ask, you wouldn't have been able to write your book. Mm -hmm. So there is something that motivates that, or there is a pressure mm -hmm. for, that some people seem to have more than others that keeps wanting you to keep asking questions. Yeah. As far as the 
the uh, quest for the Higgs boson, uh, there is an argument that was made in the movie and so on that why are we doing this? In other words, there is no benefit. There's, well, supposing we find it, then what? Well, you can't ask that question when that is your curiosity. That's what mm -hmm. you want to do. Yes. And so I was wondering if you people, all four of you, who seem to be determined and have that pressure in you keep going, what is it that is moving you like this? Oh. That's a tough one. <laughs> well, p partly the confidence that if you keep asking questions, you will come to a more interesting place. Because I, I, I think that many people are prevented from asking questions by the idea that if you start asking questions, you disturb the status quo, and uh, you won't have th that comfortable uh, a life. And that applies in, in politics and in, in literature and in science. In, uh, if you don't ask questions, then everything is, seems fine. Yeah, there's a couple of necessary conditions, I think. And one of them is the, the acceptance that failure is a potential. Absolutely. Um, so I think that that, in, throughout my life, has been, um, it's showed itself in different ways. In school, I knew, boy, I'm going to go for it with physics. There were times when I was very underprepared because of, of um, not having the same kinds of classes going in that other people did. Um, but I knew, hey, if this doesn't work, that's OK. I'll do something else. That's My family will love me. I, I can fail here. And that's what gave me the ability to keep going. And I think I still feel that. I still feel that, that um, if a line of research that I'm really excited about that people say is risky, I work with a, a topic, the tau lepton, that's difficult to work with. and, and um, a lot of people say, boy, that's just, why are you doing that slog? Because you might not get to that final result. I feel like that's OK. It's OK if that doesn't work. There will be something else. I'll, I'll do something else. So I think that's one of the necessary conditions in, in terms of the, the pressure. There was a moment when Nima says, 15 years. I've been doing this for 15 years, and it might not work. And there goes 15 years. It and that's not OK from his perspective. Okay. That's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And just another a quick anecdote. I, I, an anecdote. I wrote another book about J.P. Morgan. And I didn't know anything about finance. I just stepped off a cliff. And I thought, oh, I'll learn it. Year nine, I was waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning thinking, I can't do this. <laughs> and I can't pay back my book advance. And so you know, something kept me going. And I found a way. But it's you're on a tightrope all by yourself in some in some ways. You don't feel all by myself. Feel... Not in not on the Atlas experiment. I'm there with three thousand right. of my best friends, right. and I've made I've made commitments. I need right. to wake up at the four o'clock meeting time, right. which I often have to do because mm -hmm. I'm giving a presentation or I'm going to be listening to somebody else's presentation. So I I don't feel alone in it. Mm -hmm. Very. I mean, there are times when you're doing your own calibrating of the springs, like mm -hmm. I said, that, that piece of it that is um, the, the drudgery piece of it, maybe, where you can feel very alone. But, um, but no, I, there are thousands of us who have to work together. It would be nice to be more alone sometimes in it and have <laughs> nice more control over the decisions. <laughs> what drew you to your two topics, though? That's the, and that isn't interesting to me. Yeah. That's I'm, what I'm curious you, about that. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you why you left physics, OK? <laughs> um, 
they're long stories, and I'll try to do them very quickly. Uh, Alice James was sort of a fluke. I, um, I was, I, when I was in college as an English major, you weren't allowed to think about the life of a writer. It was just the text. And then I got out of college and started reading biographies, and I thought that was pretty fascinating and great ways to learn about history and literature. And I was looking for a subject, and Nancy Milford's book on Zelda Fitzgerald had come out. And it just seemed like the wives and the daughters and the sisters of famous men were kind of a good avenue. I was quite young, so I wasn't going to tackle anything I thought very big. And I came across a reference to Alice James. I loved Henry James and William as well, but mainly Henry in college. And the reference was from a book about Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who were friends of Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, who had come back from Paris to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and stopped in on Alice James and her circle. And I thought, oh, she had a circle. Maybe she was interesting. So I quit my job. I got a tiny advance. I applied for fellowships. And then eventually I went back and read that first reference again. And it took place in 1923, by which time my Alice had been dead for 30 years. It was William's wife, <laughs> who was also named Alice, who had a circle in Cambridge. So it was like. <laughs> She found me, but not quite on purpose. And then I. That, a productive failure. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and then um, it took me five years to write that book, and then I was a book critic at Newsweek for about four years, and I was looking for another subject. And I really didn't want to do the same kind of story. People kept coming to me with the daughters and the wives and the sisters of famous men. And I didn't want to do a literary story. I wanted to do a bad guy, actually. That sort of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Really, seriously. Um, and a friend at dinner one night said, Robber Barons. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. It was really my period of the late 19th century. I started to read about them. Morgan seemed the most interesting, but that he'd been written about so much, I'd had to have to find someone else. And my editor pushed me back towards Morgan, and I eventually did step off that cliff. I found that the Morgan Library in New York had a vault of uncatalogued letters, diaries, papers, art history, art dealers' records, business records. And I thought, that, you know, this amazing big part of the 19th century in America, and it hasn't, he hadn't been done in any depth. He was such a political figure. The left crucified him as a terrible robber baron. The right sanctified him as a hero of industrial capital. So I thought, I'll find these in this real documentation and tell the story. But I went in with every left liberal female intellectual preconception you could have. And it took me a long time to let go of all of that and to sort of see him whole. And did you find a formula to become rich? I did not. All my friends want that. <laughs> want me to want another. But I ended up not thinking he was a robber baron. Oh. Even though that's what I went looking for. OK. That was a long answer. But yeah. so why did you leave physics? Why did I leave physics? Um, <laughs> I think it's interesting, I mean, to sort of reconstruct that time, uh, which is, I, I really hadn't been thinking about it for a long time. I mean, I really, you know, it was like 30 years ago, and I was really in the film world. And this whole project did resuscitate a lot of these feelings. Um, one of the th facts was it was a bad time for particle theory. I mean, I was a particle theorist. It was not a good time. There was not, it was not clear. They were sort of lost in, in, in a lot of details. There was not a clear accelerator that was going to provide answers. Um, very specifically, I was working on a, in a direction with somebody that was a little 
outré and uh, it was not the accepted sort of field theory approach that people were using, so there weren't a lot of places to go. I knew I'd have to do a postdoc in several other places. So the, the prospects were not great there, but I would say more than that, it was that I discovered something else that was a, a passion that was I was interested in. And I discovered um, film as something that suddenly you know, I had liked as a, as a kid, but, you know, it was just entertainment, and, and I never conceived that people made films, you know, they just somehow appeared. Um, and I discovered, in particular, uh, Eastern European films. And uh, I suddenly saw something that, to me, was a, a, a challenging, worthwhile thing to do. And I think, you know, I, I did feel like I, I wanted to be doing something that was challenging, that was interesting, that, you know, was would give me a sense of... A, Accomplishment. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, you know, at some level, just attracted to things that were a challenge, and that I could see films that were done that, you know, really made me think. I thought that I that would be interesting too, and I liked the idea of it being a broader palette. Um, I met my wife, who is not a scientist, and you know, I, I felt my life was be very compartmentalized, and. Um, I, I think it was just that I sort of discovered the arts and uh, decided, oh, I should explore that a little bit, and um, ended up just going and going and going, and uh, always, and really didn't do documentaries and didn't do anything related to science. It was, I, I guess, I really wanted to explore the human condition, and you know, moved from this sort of physical world to that world, and uh, always thought that I wanted to do something that still would explore the science world because as I say it's not that I became disenchanted with it and I still had that 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 feeling of wonder of you know what that was I mean what these scientists did but I I thought I would go back and you know somehow deal with that in a fictional world um, and then you know uh, particle fever came up so. is that what drew you to dance as well this, this Rediscovery so, of wonder? Um, that's an interesting question. So I think that um, I kept working in my collaboration with Emily. So we teach this class together, which was part of my job, right? Which, which I loved. I think it's a fantastic way. You must have chosen yeah. that to be your job, no? Um, well, no, I had to teach something. And, and <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Uh, Right, it's part of the Yale curriculum now, so somebody but was going to teach the class. Just been teaching physics yeah. classes. Right? I could have just been teaching physics <laughs> classes. Well, How can you say that? Yeah, well. um, right, this is a physics class. I think that it, um, it, I am not a dancer myself. And a couple, I took ballet for a couple of years when I was 12 and 13. I really loved it. Um, we do the dance class and physics class in a dance studio. And I have to say that about 80% of the time, I'm very deeply uncomfortable because there's a lot of movement that's in the class. Um, and I'm also challenged constantly by, by my collaborator, Emily Coates, who feels that um, cultural forces and cultural pressures have a big impact on our scientific laws and the state of our knowing, knowledge in science right now, which I've always been pushing back on. I, I'm, I'm not enlightened in some ways. I, I didn't take the studies when I was going through college. So I think it's, it's a, a very productive level of being pushed 
uncomfortable in every dimension. And there are times when that's not a good thing. But I think intellectually for me, um, if I have the opportunity to be pushed and to be uncomfortable, I, I try to go with it. Um, That's because you're curious. Maybe because I'm curious and a little bit, and not worried about failure <laughs> on some level. Yeah, but it, um, it, it maintains its uncomfortableness. Um, Do you mean you didn't take the cultural studies, sort of everything's determined by your society? So that, that perspective, so I, I started out as very much a, a, a humanities person through high school. Mm -hmm. I was going to go to law school, and I wanted to be a constitutional lawyer, a public defender, something that was at the framework of our society in this mm -hmm. country. I thought that that's going to be what I do. And then I started taking physics, and I realized that my whole picture that I've built up of the world was completely wrong, totally wrong. How could I be so absolutely wrong about the laws of nature? Nothing worked the way I thought that it did. <laughs> and it took a long time to swing my brain around and try to think, in, even in terms that would let me access the world in that way. And it was just addictive, that challenge. I think it was so difficult. So then I became a scientist and a real scientist and looking for objectivity. And, and it's the steps and this process. And then I, I think, um, of course, I, I wasn't in a total vacuum. But then to have somebody very seriously in my professional life say, well, maybe take a different angle on this. Readjust this. Maybe you're missing a part of the process. Maybe you're not taking these things into account with your process. I think that was uh, another, another revolutionary moment for me mm -hmm. that probably all of you in this room have had, that maybe the process of science is influenced by, <laughs> by society and who's been allowed to participate in science. That, that was a revolutionary moment for me to realize. And um, so there are many reasons why I continue that collaboration. Maybe there, there is a difference between the work, the work that the creative imagination of, of, of a writer functions, the way that it functions, and, and the way of, uh, uh, the imagination of a scientist functions. Because I got the impression from, from the film and from some scientists that I know um, that it is very much a collaborative effort, but not uh, as much as that teamwork, but simply that a theory is constructed by many minds at the same time, that you don't just come up with a model of the universe and put it out there, that you imagine maybe this, maybe that, and you can you build it. Um, a novel instead, uh, unless it's written by several people, is, is constructed from the first to the last chapter, and then you come and you want to publish it, and some medley editor pulls it apart. But that's another story. Um, so I think that it's different. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I think, be able to construct a book as a collaboration. I think that the parallel might be, um, in terms of what I've learned about science, that the idea of the history, uh, the history of an idea is very difficult to trace. Uh -huh. Right? How did you construct that chapter? What from your experience or from your conversation with someone was Absolutely, actually pulling yeah. into yeah, that? And true. I think the same is true about scientific ideas. We do have people, and I'm not one of them, the, the theorists, I'm, I'm an experimentalist, but we do have the theorists like Nima, like David, people who are um, pushing in those directions. Um, and we tend to think of those people as making big leaps. 
right? But the reality is, and they are making big leaps, but they're also informed by the conversations that they're having and the collaborations that they're right. having. So I think that, uh, I was interested me. when, for instance, when Hicks was mentioned, immediately um, a number of other names appeared that said um, these other people were looking at the same problem. Mm -hmm. um, Not in communication with each other very much at that well, point. There, there were sort of three groups, really. And, you know, so there were a couple that were working together, um, and uh, uh, Higgs was sort of on his own. But then there were others that were working together. But it was an idea that was burbling up. And it was, you know, I mean, this idea of the single genius theory is something that, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of people dispute. I mean, how many really, nobody a operates in a vacuum. Uh, you know, there have been a couple of big leaps, and, and people always bring up Einstein, yeah, you know, for a couple of that. things. But even he, you know, for some of his things in special relativity, you know, he was working with other other ideas as well. I mean, he did make big leaps, but I think in particular, um, yeah, the develop the, the whole idea of the Higgs that we say now, as I as I said in the, in the Q and A afterwards, um, you know, Higgs uh, was working on a purely mathematical problem, really, um, and in fact, the, the you know the story is that in his initial presentation of the paper, he didn't even uh, write that there was a particle associated. That supposedly the reviewer. Um, said you might want to mention that there's an associated yeah. particle. Um, and it still wasn't incorporated into the standard model. That was still done by others, by Glashow and Weinberg, right. who then realized that this actually had a place that it could be the explanation for how the, uh, you know, the, the uh, vector bosons got mass. And so it was definitely an incremental thing. Uh, I think... But I think, and I think there is a difference with the theorists and experimentalists. And I, but I, I think the interesting thing is that theorists are the ones that you really do have more of this idea that it's like this single genius coming up with something. And what you see is it's still, it's very collaborative. There's a lot of talking. Eventually they have to go and sit down. I mean, and, and yeah. I've talked to Savas and Nima about this both quite a bit. And, you know, Savas, and they both say, you know, the collaboration, it's very important, but eventually they have to go and they have to sit down right. and just think. And and, uh, and 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 try to make that step. Most um, all the physicists that you were in contact with, and you saw, and I guess you said a good bunch of them are not even in the movie. Did some of them impress you as being more genius, passionate, have this oh. push, or did they all seem of the same intensity? And no, there's different. I mean, you know, I would. I, I, I mean, Neem is obviously incredibly intense, mm -hmm. and uh, Samas is more relaxed, but I don't think that there's a difference in their passion and their intensity. I mean, Nima very, Nima very much was also influenced by Samas. Um, he, he considers, in fact, the interesting thing is he, he says that he, Savas is the person who gave him the courage to start to go off in different directions. And interestingly, the multiverse initially you know, physicists hated the multiverse initially, all physicists pretty much. And um, Savas actually was one of the first to stay to say maybe we should think about it. And I think he I think he he was doing a he was uh, doing a visiting term at Harvard where where Nima was, and uh, he said, you know, maybe we should look at this multiverse. And Nima says, 
I, I said, are you nuts? This is a total waste of time. Why would I ever think about the multiverse? And Sava said, yeah, no, but you know, you might want to look at this. And eventually, Mima came around. Um, so I don't think outwardly, you know, it's maybe a reflection of inwardly. I, I think both of them are, you know, extremely passionate. There are different points in their lives, though, you know, and and this is something that, you know. It also gets to your, you know, when you said, well, Nima's lamenting 15 years, Savas is 30 years, um, is the issue of mortality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for scientists, I mean, it's for both scientists, for all creative people, I think science, it's even harder somewhat in terms of, especially for theorists. And, and Nima said that he had the young genius theory initially. He said, you know, and his, his idea was he would, you know, they would discover the Higgs, he'd do all these things, and by 30 he would have that done and he'd move on, you know, and of course, Modest, you know, yeah, now now he's not, and he, you know, I asked him near the end, you know, so what do you think about this now? And he sort of laughed and he said, yeah, it's interesting, I'm sort of revising my ideas now. <laughs> he says, I think, and, and he said, you know, and, and he laughed, you know, he realized that this was a little bit self-serving, but he said, no, he says what he thinks is that, the, he said the problem is that when people get older, they're, they become uh, bourgeois, was his term. In the sense, and what he meant was that, you know, they get married, they have kids, they have other things in their life, and that what he thought was the critical thing was not youth, but does the lack of distraction and the ability to absolutely, you know, be a, a, a jerk if you needed be to focus on what you were doing. That's and why Sherlock Holmes doesn't get married. That's why Sherlock Holmes doesn't get married. So, so, so that was what he was, uh, was, was thinking was the solution. And I think that issue of mortality is an interesting point. And I think, you know, look, honestly, I think Nima does really, you know, Nima's in an interesting position. I mean, he is, you know, he was regarded as the young, you know, hot genius. Um, and, but nothing that he has done has actually been proven. I mean, it, it, so he's recognized for what he's done and the brilliance and his passion and his insight. But, um, we don't know if anything is right, you know. Um, Salas has actually had more things done, but, you know, uh, nothing completely proven either. And, I, you know, I think it's very interesting to look at the two of them right now. But, but this idea of proof is yeah. very interesting because I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist, but I understood that, for instance, Euclid was proven. And then suddenly you had the non-Euclidean geometries and suddenly uh, two parallel lines did meet. Right. And, and so, so does that happen constantly? I mean, I think what happens, so my view of this is we, we have the, the theory that works in a certain regime. Maybe it works only at low energy. It works at slow speeds. It works at large distance scales. And then when we get the ability to move beyond those limitations, we realize, aha, that actually Newton's laws are a nice example, right? The, yes. the macroscopic world around us. Force equals mass times acceleration. I push on something with a certain force. I'm going to get a certain acceleration for a given mass. And then you're confronted with a speed limit to the universe, the mm -hmm. speed of light. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem there. I must not be able to get a certain acceleration for a given mass with a given force when, when you get past that point. But it doesn't mean that Newton's laws were invalid or are invalid in a context. 
So I think that's what most often happens, is that we realize that there is context beyond our initial understanding. Well, or things beautiful. that we didn't think matter do actually matter. Yeah. And yeah. it's about universes mm. beyond mm -hmm. our universe. Right. What can we yes. imagine? Yes. It's also interesting when you're talking about mortality as, uh, as playing a role. And it's almost in, and, and in some ways, it's reflected by the attachments that one makes to this world. And, and quest literature mm -hmm. is so focused on, you know, I mean, the Ur-Quest Gilgamesh, Absolutely. the very question of or mort mortality is yes. at, at the center. And so much of quest literature is about a going away and ultimately returning. Right. Yes. 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 I mean, you know, the Wizard of Oz. You know, yes. the Absolutely. last lines in the Wizard of Oz Absolutely. is, you know, Aunt Emma. There's no place like home. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's because almost the a, wizard is a failure. Yeah. But there's almost a suspension of mortality in 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 the the journey that's taken. But there's always the return. And I I, I wonder about that as a feature that when one is pursuing the quest, one has to set aside that aspect of experience. Yep. For, oh, sorry. Did you want sorry, to answer no. that? Um, to go to art for a second, because you've written novels as well as nonfiction. And I would, I mean, in working on nonfiction, there is a sense that you have evidence that you're trying things out all the time, that you're finding what seems true, in quotes or something, but what seems accurate. And I would imagine there's a process like that for fiction. Oh, absolutely. What feels absolutely right to you. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, in both cases, you have to construct a theory mm -hmm. uh, of, of the universe, a, a, a model, whether it's based on the fact that Morgan ate porridge for breakfast or um, wore brown shoes, or your invented character did, mm -hmm. did these things. And what you find out, as you were saying in the film, is that um, as soon as you establish one fact, um, a multitude of facts uh, follows. Mm -hmm. That if it's brown shoes and not black, then there are consequences for this in every direction. Mm -hmm. um, I find it much more difficult to write fiction than non-fiction, mm -hmm. because in non-fiction, so much of the work has been done. And you don't need to have the memory that you have to have for fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, when was he born? And how many children did he have? And you have to jot these things down and invent these, these archives. Um, but uh, yes, essentially, they're the same. Yes, and I would, I mean, there, I, I, just from my novelist friends, there's a sense of true north in some way. Once, when you, when you have it, you know you have it, and when you don't have it, you know you don't have it. That's right, but it's not till you finish the I book. I know, right. <laughs> but right. you know, I, it's actually interesting, because right now I am working on a script, so mm -hmm. it's a fiction script, mm -hmm. and I, it feels exactly like it did when I was in the edit room at the end of Particle Fever. Right. Mm. And, you know, I think the process is very similar. And, you know, with film, the interesting thing with film is um, you go through these different phases and the, the script stage is like theory. 
you're coming up with a theory of the world, basically. Right. Um, and then you go to experiment, right. um, which is uh, like going into film production. And that's suddenly you need lots of money and equipment and lots of people, and it's completely crazy, yeah. and you're just getting data. And, you know, and especially in film, but I think in physics too, to a certain extent, you just like hope that it's working and making sense. And then you come back to the edit room, which is like going back to the theorists. Yes. And it's like, okay, here's the data. This is what the real world is like. And you revise your theories or you revise your, you know, the script is now a lost and you have the film that you have. And so, you know, the long period in the edit room was taking all this data and what is our story and what is, and you're, you're, but, but we were approaching it, it was like writing fiction. Yeah. Uh, and that's what people always say anyways in documentaries, it's the editing is where yeah. the writing is. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working on a script that's a fiction script, but it's the same process for me. I have, I'm even using, you know, some of my organizational software, you know, that I was using in the edit room, keeping track now of people and stories, and there is a, and there is a life to it, but it's, it's, there's a, for me it's a very similar process. There's a, you know, trying to imagine, imagine various outcomes and what are the ones that work and what is the thing that is consistent and the characters have become their own people and yeah. oh, you, you start talking like, oh, this person wouldn't do this, right. you know, right. exactly. exactly. And it's, it's so completely parallel. I mean, I, I'm just, it's the, the exactly the same. That you, um, offered of, of the quest is useful, I think, for these creative processes because um, all the uh, stage of accumulating material and then uh, putting it together it is that quest. But it's only on that return journey that you realize what you have, whether it's a golden fleece or empty hands. People want to line up at the microphone and, and please uh, identify yourself and, and uh, keep your comments in the form of a question. Hi, my name is Olga Ost. I'm Probably, probably the difference between science, scientist and artist. Scientist, um, uh, the science experiment has to be provable and has to be repeatable. And artist usually tries to do something absolutely original, and nobody can repeat it. And also, I. Um, uh, <clears throat> Alberta said that probably few fools consider that King Lear is actually a bad play. I'm not sure about fools, but Leo Tolstoy, famous uh, writer, yes, he did not <laughs> like Shakespeare. He considered him primitive, and you know that he wrote peace, uh, war and peace, and Anna Karenina. So probably it's, I don't know if he was fool, but he was absolutely, of course, very arrogant person. <laughs> <laughs> but still, he, he didn't was like Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and my question is to Sarah, actually. Um, I, uh, after you finished your film, um, I read that um, um, uh, uh, 
actually exact number, exact mass of Higgs boson, boson is um, 126 plus minus 0.4. And um, there are actually theories that didn't uh, um, con uh, connected to supersymmetry or multiverse that predicted exactly these, these uh, number. And, um, <clears throat> but still my question is, um, uh, like Schrodinger question, what do you think is idea of multiverse more dead or more alive after all these uh, discoveries? That, okay, so that's a great question. Right, so the mass of the Higgs within the standard model was actually a predicted number. Based on all the other information that we had, the mass of the top quark, the mass of the W, all the measurements that we had, and our understanding of how this theory fits together. If you have a, a Higgs boson within the standard model that functions as evidence for the Higgs field, which gives us mass, it should be a certain number. We had a prediction, right? And we didn't find the Higgs at exactly that prediction um, before the LHC started. But the idea is if it's a standard model Higgs boson, it's got to be close to that. It has to be around 118, a number that's not that far from where we'd actually explored, right? So the further up away from that prediction within the standard model, the more exciting it is from the perspective of maybe there's something else that we have access to through this particle beyond the standard model. So that, that was kind of the excitement there. If it's, is it really far away from the prediction of 118 so that it must be something else? So there's that thing that's happening. How close is this to what we expect from the standard model? Um, and you could argue about 125. It, it turns out to be close enough to the prediction that it's perfectly consistent with the standard model. So there you have that. And then you look at other ideas. Well. Maybe we don't say definitely not standard model, but even within that close enough to be standard model, it could actually be something else. It could be supersymmetry. It could be the multiverse. It could be this. And you look at all of this, these different spaces in terms of these different theories and try to understand what do they predict for this particle's mass, right? What do we learn from that? And I think the, the issue with the Higgs at this mass is that it makes some of our favorite theories a little bit uncomfortable. For supersymmetry, I would say a mass of that Higgs boson means that some of the best motivation for supersymmetry you lose at that mass. So supersymmetry could definitely be reality, but it wouldn't solve all of the problems that we hoped that supersymmetry would come along and solve. In terms of the multiverse, I don't think it gives us information in that it doesn't rule it out as a possible idea. I'm sorry I'm not adding any content beyond the film. I think no, it captures pretty well where things stand. Um, the, the funny thing about the Higgs, or one of the funny things about the Higgs, is that so many of us were hoping that it wouldn't be there. Um, <laughs> what it does, it, and I used to say that, I hope we don't find the Higgs. And now having been even some small part of the discovery, I think it's an absurd thing to say because it was thrilling, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing that that prediction actually was true. But um, the Higgs boson ties up the standard model really neatly in some ways and doesn't get us beyond. And we know that there's so many things about the universe that we don't understand. It would have been wonderful if the answer to the generation of mass 
actually took us in some step further beyond the standard model. But I think right now it's, it's inconclusive. It's consistent with the standard model Higgs. It doesn't rule out sim supersymmetry, though it's making it a little bit less attractive. And it leaves us with the idea of the multiverse hanging. And every theorist out there, including probably David Kaplan, who said, oh, all of my theories are ruled out, went back and thought about, how do I adjust that so that it actually still works? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. It's very inconclusive. <coughs> I, um, I, I really don't understand uh, the, this topic too much. I'm definitely going to research it now that I've seen this movie. But um, my understanding is that the Higgs boson generates the Higgs field, which gives um, particles mass. Is that correct? So if, if you're on a lake in a boat, mm -hmm. think of the lake as the Higgs field, okay? If I add energy to the lake, if I splash the lake, and this is not my analogy, I should say, Mike Hildreth, thank you, wherever you are. If I splash the lake, that's an excitation, I've added energy to the lake, there's a wave that goes out. The wave is the Higgs boson. The evidence for the Higgs field existing is the fact that when you add energy to it, you actually have a particle that's created. So the Higgs boson tells us that there's this field everywhere in the universe. And it's the Higgs field everywhere in the universe that, it, that gives us a way to, to have mass for particles. That uh, okay, that, um, and so the other thing I wanted to ask was, would it be possible to explain to layman um, the, more of the mechanism in terms of which the Higgs field makes particles have mass? Look, look at the little film that she did. <laughs> right, so we did, yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I, here's, here's how I think about it. Um, you have to first understand what the definition of mass is, because how do we think of mass? We think of mass as the more mass I have, it's kind of like the more stuff, right? Um, so if we're going to think about mass from a perspective of the Higgs boson and particles, let's shift our thinking a little bit, OK? Um, a massless particle. So a particle out there with no mass, like the photon. So the photons coming to my eyes, they're light particles. Now I can't see you anymore. Um, a massless particle travels at the speed of light. It has no choice. A particle that has no mass, fundamental particle, travels at the speed of light, OK? Um, particles that do have mass can't travel at the speed of light. They can't get up there. As much force as you put on them, they can't get up there. So the question of mass is, is slowing things down. How is it that we slow things down? What is the mechanism that means that some things can't move at the speed of light that all the massless particles move at? It's kind of similar to the idea of mass as stuff. right? The more mass you have, the harder you are to get going, maybe you'd say. I, I don't know if it, it works perfectly. Um, so the idea of the Higgs field being the mechanism for that is that this Higgs field, some particles, it can't slow down at all. It doesn't have any interactions with them. Okay, those are the massless particles. So the photon travels through the Higgs field, the field is there, but it doesn't have any interaction with it. Other particles that do have mass, they, they see the field, they're slowed down by it. It's like they're traveling through molasses. And the more they see the field, the more they interact with the field, the more slowed down they are, the more massive they are. So I would say that's the mechanism for how it works. I think you leave many of us wishing you had been our physicist. Yes, I'm yeah. just thinking. Yes, we all There you go. Can we Hopefully I'm telling the truth. <laughs> Hey, um, I had a question for Mark, and um, you were talking about how the 
sort of creative process for creating editing films parallels um, the process of, I guess, progress in, in theoretical physics. Um, and I was kind of wondering about, in terms of your background, have you found that your background informs your artistic sensibilities in different ways um, than the people that you're sort of working with? Like, do you find, not just in terms of like the domain-specific knowledge that was probably useful for um, particle fever, but more nebulously in the process, do you find that you see things differently or think about things differently, I guess? I, you know, I don't think in an obvious way, but I mean, I certainly can't deny my background. I think, you know, I, there are certain ways that I think, uh, but I think it's just there's a certain logic that I apply to things. Um, I, I don't feel I look at things as a scientist. You know, people always say that, oh, I don't know what that means. I, um, it's the way I think. Um, uh, as I say, I feel the process of writing and writing something fiction is exactly the same as when I'm sitting in an edit room and I assume I'm using certain processes of logic that are also what I used when I was doing theoretical physics. I mean, when, and that, and I, so I will make that comparison. When I was in graduate school, when I was doing theoretical particle physics, it was a very similar process. I mean, somebody asked me after at the Q&A, how did I make that transition? Practically, it didn't feel all that different. I, you know, I, I yes, I mean, I, I, I think I have a certain logical way that I approach things, but when I was doing theoretical physics, I was sitting in a room by myself with a pencil and paper, coming up with a theory of the universe, not getting paid very much as a grad student, and then I started writing a script, and I, I just changed rooms, you know, but I was still sitting there with a pencil and paper, thinking about the way you know, more humans interacted, um, but with a certain logic that you apply to it, and it, it felt, to me, it felt very similar. So I, I, I don't know, I, I think the creative process is the creative process, and you know, you have certain ways, I, I, I mean, I do know that I, I, I think that, you know, I can see that I approach certain things and there's a certain logic but that's a fundamental thing that doesn't have to do with science either, I don't think. I think that any artist is applying a certain logical process and working out the consequences that's, that's, that's similar. Uh, I don't know if there's an, a meta level at which the brain is working that jumbles things together. I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I just think the way I think. But I think, for me, the process is extremely similar. You, you have to go. <laughs> While you're going there, I'll tell a quick Einstein joke, okay? <laughs> that supposedly a reporter came to interview him. I have no idea whether this is true. I read it somewhere. It's probably not true. But the, and, and said, Professor, where do you get your ideas? And Einstein said, what do you mean? And he said, well, do you get them when you're taking a walk or in the bath or playing your violin? And Einstein thought for a moment and said, Actually, I've only had one or two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so my question, um, it actually sort of arose when we were discussing, or you were discussing Savos. Um, and I remember from the movie he said that um, there was, he told this anecdote of how paradise to him was frightening and he started to cry and was, I, it just made me start to think about fear. Um, and fear as how it plays in the role of a quest, or its role in a quest. So I guess I was just wondering how 
for you, for you guys, what was your experience with fear? Does it have a role in what you do? Does it drive you to, as Silas would do, go find what, what exists out there? So. Hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a certain fear. I mean, certainly there are points, you know, there were points in Particle Fever where I had a fear that this was not going to add up to anything. Uh, I mean, I always thought that it would at some way, but the, 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 the fear of creating something that nobody responds to, that people don't understand. I mean, it was a long process. Uh, we tested the film at various, you know, along the way. And, you know, each, at, I mean, it's an interesting thing with this, with a process where, you know, you're working intensely and, and you think, oh yeah, okay, I've got it. And you show it to people and they're like, they don't get it at all. And you think, wow, oh, okay, now, you know, I have to go back. And, uh, you know, there's a certain fear that for me, it drives me on. I mean, I would say that. I, I don't, I think fear makes me work harder. Uh, it doesn't uh, make me run. So I guess that's my own personal reaction, so far, anyways. Yeah, well, failure is an option. Yes. It's a feared option. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's definitely true. And with every book you write, it doesn't really matter that you've written another book. The new one could be a disaster. I mean, you, you, it, it's got its own constraints and requirements, and you don't know you can do it. Mm -hmm. So you have to confidence you? There, for me, there is an interesting fear that happens rarely um, where I think if this works out, it changes what I wanted to do. <laughs> it changes the way I was thinking about the subject. And, and that's a, a big fear because it forces you to start all over again. <laughs> And it, it, but when it happens, you know that you are onto something interesting. I think it may also be a question for me of how, how deeply you are into it. You know, mm -hmm. so the longer, the further I went, the, 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 the you know, more at stake I felt about not feel, failing and, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. I mean, I don't know, at an earlier stage, you know, you know there might be a, a wisdom in an earlier stage sometimes of abandoning something. And you do that in a, in a minor way all the time. I mean, you know, in a minor way, you know, you try an approach and you have to make a quick assessment. No, that's not going to pay off and I have to go in a different direction. But you direction. learn from that. You learn from that. That's what Sarah was saying. Yes. You, that's that's yeah. true. Actually, you know, it reminded me, I forgot it when you said it, a quote, <coughs> I think it was Whitehead who said that in, in philosophy, um, when you come up against a contradiction, that's the end. And in science, it's the beginning. And I thought that was a very interesting point, which relates to what you said, too. And uh, to pick up your image of the quest, which I, I find very interesting and useful, um, any quest um, that's engaged without fear is not worth engaging. But it's also a matter of degree. If you have a certain amount of fear, it can motivate you. If it gets to be too much fear, you're paralyzed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, one of my favorite quotes is what Einstein wrote back when he was asked to describe his process. And he said, first, everything came in the form of images. And then he felt the deep emotional desire to communicate. And that's what led him to create formulas. I think that's so beautiful because it's an imagination, emotion, and the desire for communication, which has to be part of science. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit of a background to the question, which may otherwise sound a little bit out in left field, but I'm really struck at now how neuroscience departments are hiring physicists and that there's some way in which neuroscience is bringing the psyche together, which is the source of imagery and emotion um, with the sciences. So I wondered, I think Yale has started on that as well, yes? So I'm not in the neuroscience department at Yale, so I, yeah, I can't speak for them. I think that um, I can try to answer it in, in some way and then see how other people feel. I think that one of the miraculous things about Einstein and his theories was he was working with um, physics that we can't directly relate to, meaning speed of light, special relativity in particular, speed of light, length contraction, time dilation, these things that we don't actually experience. And he set up very straightforward thought experiments. He put you on a train and had you turn on a mm -hmm. flashlight. And he had two brothers or two astronauts, and one of them travel and the other one stay at home. He set up uh, images in some ways, stories, um, places that let you access that contradiction with something that you did understand. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is incredibly powerful. It's something we're floundering with, with the Higgs, for example, mm -hmm. right? To have this be something that we all can, can grapple with in ways that we can understand. I think that the ability that we have to imagine or to have actual images associated with what we're trying to understand um, with the frameworks that we have is really tied into how much progress we can make mm -hmm. in terms of our scientific exactly. theories. So those two things, I, that's the only access I, I have to trying to answer your question. I don't know. In the March round table, uh, Rob read the background of the people, so we have neuroscientists, but one of the people at that round table on the subject of consciousness is a physicist. So there is no question, and uh, one of the people who's been at the round tables here a couple of times, Andrea Califano, who is a top-notch uh, microbiologist who is close to discovering significant things about cancer and who always says he always thought he would go to physics, discover something, go to microbiology, discover cure of cancer, and then discover the cure of Alzheimer's. He's about to move to the Alzheimer territory, and he was a physicist. So I think physics gives us tools to mm -hmm. tackle complicated problems and to <laughs> model complicated systems. And um, a lot of the, yeah, so I, I think there's a natural way that the different branches in science can interact with each other. More and more. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to uh, touch on something that Mark brought up about the um, scientist as genius. And it seems like the CERN uh, project with 3,000 scientists, uh, many of the major leaps, at least in the past in science, like with Einstein, he was a lowly patent clerk in Bern when he did his four major papers on the photoelectric effect and his first theories of relativity. 
And I was thinking about Copernicus, who um, was a, a church canon when he developed his heliocentric theories, even though there had been prior heliocentric theories going back to ancient Greece. But in some cases, the mere fact that you have collaborative effort, um, you know, in Germany, they said that um, Einstein was a Jew, and therefore his science was Jewish science, which was less uh, accurate. And they burned his books. Um, so the mere fact of having collaboration, in some cases, waters down science. So that's why you have, in many cases, the great leaps in science, at least in the past. You also had gentlemen scientists, Lavoisier and others, who um, would be in their little laboratory, but they wouldn't necessarily have to listen to 20 other guys. And I was thinking again about Einstein, where 20 years at Princeton working on his field theory, he accomplished not a lot. Whereas in one year as a Baron patent clerk, he wrote four earth-shattering theories. So is it better, that, and again, going back to this genius theory of, of, uh, of scientists, that isn't it better to be the little guy in the corner that everybody says you're wrong than being with the 3,000 people who say, this is what the consensus is, and you know, just like with the uh, Ptolemaic theory of the universe versus the Copernican theory. If you're going to go with the consensus, you're going to go with Ptolemy. But if you're Copernicus, you're going to say, wait a second, I think that the sun is the center, not the earth. I, I would push back on, well, I think we need to get at the reason that there are thousands of us who are gathered at CERN working on this together. We are at the point where we are colliding protons at 99.9999999999% of the speed of light. Right. Um, the, the people have described that enterprise, I don't remember if this was in the film or not, but people have described the enterprise as the cathedrals of our time, yeah. right? The, the amount of resources that you need to muster, the ideas that go behind it, the building of the structure, that the, the lone person working in the corner is not going to make a large hadron collider. <laughs> this is a $7 billion machine. So um, I, I think that, that a lot of the collaboration it's part of what makes it so fascinating. As a, as a species, if we're going to take the next step in this exploration, we need to pool our resources, um, financial, intellectual, passion. We need to all bring that to bear to, to answer some of these um, questions. Now, what we're doing at CERN is testing theories, OK? And, um, and, and coming up with ideas for sure. But um, a lot of the intellectual work that we're doing is trying to figure out how, with this physical experimental apparatus, we can access something like supersymmetry or the multiverse or, or go after some of those ideas. So there certainly is still room for people in different pockets around the world to be thinking on their own. But the, the enterprise at CERN is, is justified and required and, um, and, yeah, an incredible challenge. And I would say, with respect to Einstein, you know, I don't think that most people think that, oh, if Einstein was tackling, you know, Grand Unified Theory when he was, you know, in, at, you know, when he was 20, he would have solved it. Uh, I think it's also very much a matter of the time and the problems. And, and this is another thing that Sava says that I think is really, really very trenchant at the beginning, where he says, what distinguishes a great scientist? It's, you know, you have to, you have to know what's the right question to ask, mm -hmm. and it has to be the right time for there to be a, a solution that you can understand. 
And that time when Einstein was you know, coming up with the photoelectric effect and, and relativity, it was the right time. And uh, you know, he made advances, but uh, it was about, he knew it, it was about asking the right questions as almost the first question, you know, that, I mean, the first issue. He knew, he knew the question to ask, and it was the right time, and there was the right things happening. It was the time to solve it. And that's what, 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 what Salva says, so really, the time to solve it was then. And I don't know that um, it would have been different later. I mean, because there are many brilliant people that have come since Einstein that have tackled these problems, and the time hasn't come to, to get it yet. So. OK. You have a question? Yes. Along the lines of I'm a painter and was nailing graduate school as a representational um, landscape painter, which always kind of irritated me because I always just considered it painting. Uh, so down the road, uh, a lot of, having done a lot of paintings, seemed to be painting like the energy inherent in nature, whatever that meant or seemed to mean. And then reading about or hearing that what scientists consider uh, the nature of things as chaotic, swarming, um, intersecting energies or patterns, chaotic patterns. Somehow it's come out in the work in a weird kind of way. I just was curious what physicists would have to say about that. Uh, I don't think I'm illustrating science, but something's coming out of the work. Pollock said, uh, you know, when somebody said, why don't you paint nature, he said, I am nature. The material's nature, the material's energy, I'm energy. Uh, make sense? That's interesting. So I, I have a colleague who, um, well, so one of the theories that's really challenging to interact with is uh, quantum mechanics, yes. I think, um, where you have probabilities that are governing what will happen or what will be measured as opposed to uh, push a, a box and see how far it, it will slide before it stops, right? Um, so I have a colleague who says that he thinks in terms of quantum mechanics. And um, he said this to me multiple times. And I always ask him, I, I, I say, I don't believe that you think in terms of quantum mechanics, because you couldn't drive a car if you think in terms of quantum mechanics. It's just not possible. So maybe what you're asking, or maybe what you're saying is that you're you're removed from a framework of the macroscopic or of um, how we tend to look at the, the landscape and seeing something else there. And I think that uh, people have used that kind of art to try to access ideas within physics of quantum mechanics. It's almost like I got sick and tired of the vertical but you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting because also, you know, when you're you're saying that um, your collaborator accuses you or something of having you know a scientific cultural bias, or that you're being a, a, affected by cultural bias in science, I actually I see it going much more the other direction. That I do see, you know, people. I mean, it's fascinating even even from a language, you know, a linguistic perspective. Quantum is used in so many instances. It has nothing to do with science. There's so many instances of this where, where you know, popular culture has has uh, taken over these words. And I think one of the really interesting things that I, you know, thought about a lot during the making of the film and, and, and generally is that 
you know, in both science and art, in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, what happened is very significant, that in both cases they went to abstraction. And so before that, you know, painting was very literal and science was very literal. Anybody of sort of normal intelligence, you can understand Newton, you know, laws of physics and painting. And suddenly, in both the arts and the science, we went to abstraction and it required specialists. And, um, you know, that and, seems to emerge into a dialectical yeah. language. And yeah. Yeah, I don't intellectualize it, just do it. It's about a flow of work. Yeah. Regardless of whether it's good pain or bad pain, I don't even consider I, I, I think that there's been, throughout history, a, a back and forth between science and art. And, uh, you know, there's a very interesting book Leonard Schlein wrote called Physics and Art. And uh, he looks at the parallels in which and often, in, in many instances, art led science mm -hmm. in terms of making a breakthrough, in terms of you know, uh, perspective, in terms of uh, light, in terms of many, many things. So um, you know, I say what you're feeling is a very, the end of a long process that's, that's been ongoing. It keeps me going. It's yeah. fascinating. <coughs> what's, yeah. what's this all about? What's yeah. coming out of this? Yeah. Thank you. OK. I would like to thank all of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.